Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. that you would prepare my heart and my mind and my tongue to preach your word this morning. God, that the words that I speak would not be the enticing words of men's wisdom, that the faith of the hearers here would not rest on the follies of man, that you would anoint me with unction for the preaching of your word. And where I am lacking, fill me up. And when I, have, when I am off course, redirect me. And I pray all of these things for the glory of your name and in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. I like World War II movies a lot. And in the goodness and providence of God, he provided me with a son who also enjoys World War II movies, like a lot. (laughs) Last night, while my wife and my daughter and my sister-in-law were all downstairs wasting their life watching The Parent Trap. You heard what I said, Shannon. Wasting your life. Andy and I were upstairs watching The Good Shepherd, which is awesome by the way. It is a fantastic story that takes place in the winter of 1942. The U.S. has just entered the war. And it's during this time when um, the United States is just kind of getting itself spooled up and it has begun sending convoys across the Atlantic to England Now, England's been at war since 1939, and they are beaten down. They're tired. More than that, they are an island nation that requires one million tons of supplies a week in order to be able to continue eating and heating their homes. And so into the midst of this reality, we find ourselves watching a man named George Krause, who is a fictional character, but stands in for hundreds, if not thousands, of other men that did exactly the same thing. He's the captain of a small ship in charge of 32 other vessels. Thousands upon thousands of lives are depending on him. And the movie itself covers a 30-hour period as he goes through a place called the Black Pit. Now, the Black Pit is an area in the mid-Atlantic where there was no aircraft that could cover the convoys. And so it was this man and his ship alone against the Nazi U-boats that stalked his convoy like wolves in the dark. And the imagery is amazing. Right? You watch this man go through exhaustion and out the other side as he is constantly pulled from one side of the convoy to the next as he is attacked over and over again and as the German U-boats taunt him over the radio. As he watches 
ship after ship go up in flames and feels acutely the loss of each of those lives. There's this moment as he has recovered from one error, he knows he made a mistake, and he's staring out through the porthole, and everybody is standing around him asking for guidance. Oh, how I know those moments. Whether you're a leader in the military or just someone who is responsible, there is that moment when you feel the crushing weight of the responsibilities that have been laid on you, when all you want to do is curl up in a ball and go to sleep, let the darkness take you to forget. And yet as he looks out the window, this poem came to my mind. It's, it's a poem that was, uh, that was the favorite poem of Nelson Mandela. He would say it like every day as he was imprisoned for decades in South Africa. It's the poem Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I and the captain of my soul. Those words are stirring. Those words give me goosebumps. We, we can see Paul this morning preparing himself for one last try, one last attempt to reach the people that he loves probably more than anyone else. We find Paul having arrived in Rome, having earned some well-needed rest, and yet three days after he arrives, he's back in the fight. Paul could have gone anywhere, he could have been forgiven for a desire to just sit down and sleep. And yet, every time he comes into contact with the Jews, he knows it ends badly. And yet, after years of angry opposition from the Jews against him and his ministry, after rejection, unfair personal attacks, plots, threats, imprisonment, he refuses to stop. He will not stop. And so we read in verse 17, after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews and when they had gathered he said to them, brothers, though, nothing, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. I want to stop there for a moment. This man, more than any man, has reason to cry out against the Jews of Jerusalem. But look at the language he uses. 
He doesn't say, I was caught up in the middle of a riot and they almost killed me and the Romans had to rescue me in the gate, within the shadow of the temple. Can you imagine that? These clowns. He doesn't say that. He doesn't use inflammatory words. He doesn't strike out. The way that he describes it, it's almost like they had a, like a difference of opinion. Like they, like they were having some coffee together and it was like, well, I think Jesus is the Messiah. Well, I don't. Hmm, let's go to Caesar. That's the way he makes it sound. Nothing about being desperately afraid of his life for a week and almost being beaten. Because above all things right now, Paul desires that these people would be saved. Right, so often we hear when we read about Paul that he was an anti-Semite or that he was an angry man or he was aggressive and yet over and over and over again we see his true heart as he reaches out to his people. We see it in Romans 9. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ's sake for my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then a little bit later, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. This is Paul's heart. And so he reaches out to them again. He places himself at risk again. And he begins to talk to them. What does he say? Well, he lays out the defense about what happened to him. He says, when they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. Right? He's talking about the Romans because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation, right? So what is he doing here? He's saying, you find me in Rome. I am not here to cause problems for you. I'm not here because I don't love you. I'm not here because I want to make you look bad. I'm here because I was accused of something I didn't do. And I'm appealing to Caesar. What's the response from the Jews? They say that they have no idea why he's there. They said, and we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. They don't know who he is. They have no idea what he's talking about. But we desire to hear from you what your views are with regard to this sect that we know that everywhere is spoken against. See, they don't know about Paul, but they have heard about the Nazarenes. They have heard about the Christians. And they know that they're notorious. They know that they've been causing problems. That's an interesting thing to look at the history of the Jewish congregations in Rome. We get these little snippets outside of the Bible, of the things that are happening to them. We know that around the time of Augustus, there is a large population of Jews in Rome. We also know that under Claudius, all of the Jews were expelled from Rome, probably because they were having ongoing fights with the Christians. By now, 
the Jews have returned to Rome. But it seems to be a different group who doesn't really know everybody that's involved here. It's also not a cohesive group. Right? We don't seem to see one individual in control of all of the synagogues. It's separate synagogues in different parts of the city that are all kind of loosely connected with a connection back to Jerusalem. So much so that they're not going to do anything to oppose Paul until they receive word from Jerusalem. This is the situation that Paul finds himself in. And it's almost a repeat of every town that he's been in since he started his ministry. He goes there, the people are interested. They want to hear more about this. If not just at exercising that human desire to watch a car wreck. You know, you guys that watch Tiger King, don't pretend like you don't. Like you don't enjoy watching drama people tear each other apart. So they want to see who this guy is and what's happening. And what does Paul do? Paul knows. And yet he reaches out anyway. See, Paul's love for his people is unconquerable. And so he agrees to try to reach them for the gospel yet again. Paul uses the Jews' curiosity regarding the Christian sect as a bridge to reach them with the gospel. We read in verse 23, when the appointed day for him, when, it, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. Right, so the, the image that we have here, Paul is not out in the marketplace. He hasn't gone to a large room. Paul is under house arrest. He's chained to one guy. Now, it's kind of a loose house arrest, but he still is required to stay in that area. And so all of the local leaders have come probably into the courtyard of the house that he's staying in, and Paul's going to begin talking to them. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. See, the response to Paul's second interview is overwhelming. Many people show up at the house that he's staying in. And so Paul spends his second session with the Roman Jews passionately arguing for the gospel. Now Luke doesn't spell out exactly what his line of reasoning was, but we can infer from all of the other messages that he gave what he's talking about. Luke doesn't spell it out exactly, but he does say simply that Paul testified to the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? The kingdom of God. Well, the Jews were looking for the coming of a Messiah and the restoration of God's kingdom of Israel. That's what their hope had been. That's what their hope had been for a thousand years. That was the hope that they have as they sat in the rubble of the first temple with the smell of the burnt altar in their nostrils. When, O oh Lord, are you going to restore this? When, O oh Lord, will we have another king? As the last of Israel's king was led off blinded in chains to live out the rest of his life as the pet of the Babylonian emperor, when, O oh Lord, will you give us a king? 
The message of Acts has been that this has already occurred. Jesus was the king that they sought. Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. He came to restore Israel and to die for their sins. The hope of the Jewish nation has been answered in him. His arguments about Jesus and his role didn't come from his own philosophy. They weren't something that he just kind of pulled out. We read that they came from the law of Moses and from the prophets. All day long he must have talked, cajoled, argued, pleaded with the Roman Jews to accept the truth of Jesus. We can see him pointing to scripture after scripture and connecting them to the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As with every other place that he preached, though, the response, the response was mixed. This greatest of all evangelism, this greatest of all evangelists went out into the fields white with the harvest and plied the great scythe of God's word all day, and the result was less than 50-50. Probably far less than 50-50. Some of the Jews believed, but most of the Jews, the Jews as a whole, the synagogue in an official sense, did not accept Paul's witness to Christ. And this had been the tragic story of the Jews in every community in which Paul had preached. And you've got to feel Paul yet again. He's got to feel like he's failed again. As in most of the communities that Paul preached, it wasn't just rejection. His ministry led to division as believers and non-believers went against each other and began to fight. We read that they left arguing with each other. And so as they are leaving, for one final time, Paul turns from the Jews to the Gentiles and pronounces judgment against his own people. We read in Acts 28, 26 through 28, Paul declares to them, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have been closed, lest they should see and hear and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. There's an interesting parallel that we see here. This is almost the exact same thing that happens in city and Antioch at the beginning of Paul's ministry. He goes on his first missionary journey. He goes into the synagogue. People are interested. They come back the next day. He starts expounding them on the gospel, and they begin to throw stones at him. We need to understand this. There's lots of people that are interested in spirituality. There's lots of people that are interested in the Bible, 
There's lots of people that are interested in God. But when you begin to lay out the gospel to people, what you're going to find is that most of those people are not really interested. They're not interested in something that's going to pierce their heart. They're looking for something that they can add on to their existing belief structure. Something that they can add on to their identity. Something that will kind of round them out. Maybe make them interesting. Perhaps give them a little special extra power that they can tap into. But what they're not ready for is for the risen Christ to come and ask them hard questions about their life. And so don't be surprised when you share the gospel that people who were once interested turn their face from you or become angry with you. This is par for the course, brothers and sisters. And it was Paul's experience his entire life. And so Paul wants them to understand that those Jews in Rome who refused to respond to the gospel were continuing their nation's sad history of rejecting God's message. Almost almost exactly after the fall of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah declares this. God tells him from The day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And they did worse than their fathers. See, there's something else that's happening here, too. This is not just a statement of Israel not listening to God, it is a statement of judgment. See, the Jews had hardened their hearts against God, and now God was hardening their hearts towards him. Listen to the language. Their ears have been closed. Their eyes have been shut. This is how Jesus interpreted and applied it. Somebody asked him once, why do you speak in parables, Jesus? And so often nowadays we think, oh, Jesus talked in parables because he was a master storyteller. He knew the power of narrative. He wanted to get his way across because he loves everybody the same. He just wants everybody to love everybody because he's a hippie. No, what does Jesus say? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus is couching his message in such a way that only people that have been regenerated, only those people who have been born again will understand what he's saying. And everyone else is going to look at him like he's a crazy person. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, there will be times when you share the gospel with people where they will look at you like you have a horn growing out of the middle of your forehead. There is no way that you can make a man dying and coming back from the dead to die for your sins sound reasonable in the world that we live in. It goes against everything that the world teaches. 
You can't make it cool. It's not cool. And yet, some respond. In the judgment against their unbelief, God has turned from the Jews to the Gentiles, and they respond. In fact, they respond in great numbers. In fact, they respond with enthusiasm. That is almost the tragedy of Paul's ministry, is that time after time he tries to reach the Jews only to be rejected, and yet the Gentiles flock to him. It's also important for us to understand that God's rejection of the Jews is not permanent. It's not total. Paul, in the book of Romans, talks about them being engrafted back into the body. See, God's love for his people is unconquerable. And we have promises in Scripture that God's love will not come back empty. And so what happens? The book of Acts ends with Paul living in a rented house, conducting himself as he always had, as he uses his life to build up the church. We read in verse 30 that he lived for two years in a rented house, He wasn't allowed to travel wherever he wanted, but it seemed like he had the freedom to entertain visitors. Paul used his freedom, though, the stability that he had. He didn't use it to rest, and he didn't use it to pout. He wasn't maudlin. He used it to build up the church in Rome and the church throughout the world. We know this because we have his letters. We have the letters that we call the captivity letters. Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. These letters that describe Paul interacting with people from Rome. Writing letters to people from Rome. Encouraging people from Rome. And telling them what's been happening there. Luke tells us that during those two years, Paul proclaimed the kingdom and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ and that no one stopped or hindered him. This is how he describes it in the book of Philemon. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And that most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is locked away in a house. And he's chained to a Roman guard. And yet even in the midst of that, as he talks to that Roman guard and tells him about Jesus, and the Roman guard gets to see him interact with the people around him, the Roman guard begins to tell the people in the household of Caesar about Jesus and about this man, Paul, and people begin to come and to talk to Paul and begin to ask him about Jesus. And these people that stand at the apex of power in the most powerful empire in the known world are now talking to Paul and are listening to him. We know from Philippians chapter 4 that the ministry among Caesar's household had borne fruit and that there were brothers among them, Christians, in the household of Caesar, 
And not just any Caesar. This is crazy Nero's Caesar. Right? And yet there are Christians in the household. As we read through the prison letters that Paul sent out, we can see his influence, his enthusiasm, and his unconquerable spirit in every line of these books. And this is how the book of Acts ends. Luke's conclusion to the book of Acts is kind of anticlimactic. It's open-ended. We're left with an image of Paul unbowed, unbeaten, unconquered, sitting in the seat of power. And that's where it leaves it. See, at the end of Acts, Paul remains unconquered because the gospel that he preaches is unconquerable. Paul is just a man, but the mission that he has been given is supernatural and powerful. It transcends boundaries, it overcomes obstacles, and it demolishes opposition of every kind. Paul is part of a movement that can't be destroyed. From Peter to Stephen to Philip and then to Paul, we have seen as the Holy Spirit has used men in extraordinary ways to drive the gospel like a stake into the heart of the Roman Empire. And it will never leave. Disease, famine, oppression, poverty, dissension, nothing can stop it. Because the gospel is not some human philosophy. It's not some revolutionary movement. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And that power is unconquerable. Brothers and sisters, we have reached a point in our nation's history... Well, many of us are worried about the future of the church. We, we see places like New York where, where churches are not allowed to meet. And we, we hear about places where the government is preventing people from singing. And, and we see as our culture inexorably shifts away from the church. And we can become depressed by that. We can even go back and look at our mistakes. And we can say, oh, it was the church in the 90s. 90s worship music, that's what did it. It's Kevin Zorba. God is not dead three. I mean, come on, guys, really? Three of them? Oh, we focused on buildings. Oh, we focused on this. We can go back and, and post-mortem this thing. But here's the reality. We are messengers of an unconquerable gospel and the unconquerable power of Almighty God will see us through to the end. Brothers and sisters, Paul found himself in a city that considered itself the center of the world. That looked at him like an oddity. And I can tell you this, the buildings that those men lived in are rubble. And you can go tour them from $10. You know what's not been destroyed? The gospel that Paul preached. You know what's not been destroyed? The church. It continues strong and not just in the West. In fact, not even mostly in the West. The church thrives in those places where it is the hardest for the church to grow. In Cuba, 
and in Syria, in Afghanistan, and in China, the places where the church shouldn't thrive, that's where we see the church growing the fastest because the gospel is unconquerable. Because the power of God cannot be overthrown. We need to understand this, guys, that we are not unconquerable. But the power within us is. I want to go back to that moment in the Good Shepherd as he's looking out the window, as he's contemplating his failures, as he's looking for a pathway forward. He does not say the poem Invictus. You know why? Because for all its rousing language, the poem Invictus is empty. We are not the captain of our fate. We, we are not the leaders of our souls. We are not the person in control of the things that are happening around us. It's not about how strong you are or how powerful you are. And, and this is what's so amazing about the movie. It's a Hollywood movie. In, in, in 2020, the guy begins to pray and he begins to speak quiet words of Scripture to himself. And then he picks up and he moves on. Because that's the truth, guys. Our power doesn't come from the unconquerable nature of the human heart. Because the human heart is not unconquerable. The power of God is unconquerable. And when we are connected to that power, there is no force on earth that can overcome us. Now understand this. That doesn't mean that we will not die. And it doesn't mean that we won't fail. Even Paul died. We're not sure what happened to Paul after the end of Acts. This is one of the mysteries that we have. Most of the commentators believe that Paul was acquitted of all of his charges. Mostly because he'd been tried on this like five times and acquitted every time. Because there was no evidence. Because he hadn't been doing the things that he'd been accused of. There's no record of the Jews sending people to Rome to confront him. And so after two years, the statute of limitations runs out and everybody's like, okay, um, sorry for the inconvenience. Rock on, Paul. Best evidence that we have, though, is some of the other letters that Paul wrote. Letters like Titus and Timothy, where he begins to speak to men that he has sent out. We, we think that he probably traveled back to Turkey to visit some of the churches. And along the way, he left his son in the faith, Timothy, in one church. And he left his son in the faith, Titus, at another church. And he's sending letters back and forth to them. He may have even gone to Spain. We're not sure what the exact series of events is, but what we are fairly sure of is that sometime in the late 60s AD, Paul was caught up in the great persecution of Nero. The book of 2 Timothy finds him not in an easy house arrest, but in the Mamertine jail, chained to the wall in a tiny cell underground. And as the persecution came to a head, probably around 67 AD, he was taken to the Aqueous Silvia Milestone, about three miles outside of Rome, and he was beheaded. But even in that, Paul doesn't fail. But even in that, the gospel is not conquered. 
20 years later, one of the first great churchmen, the great Clement, said this of Paul. Through jealousy and strife, Paul showed the way to the prize of endurance. Seven times he was in bonds and he was exiled. He was stoned and he was a herald both to the east and to the west. He gained the noble fame of his faith. He taught righteousness to all the world. And when he had reached the limits of the west, he gave his testimony before rulers. And this passed from the world and was taken up to the holy place. The greatest example of endurance. That doesn't sound like failure. And so I want to leave us with this. As Paul sat in the Mamertine preparing for his execution, in the last letter that he wrote, he penned these words to his son in the faith, Timothy. And they stand as the great abiding statement of his faith. He said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul didn't choose his life. He didn't choose his ministry. He didn't get to determine the times that he was born. The only control that he had was over his faithfulness to the word. And in the end, he was proved to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, we are the same way. We don't get to choose the tasks that God has given us. We don't get to choose the times that we're born into. Many of you wish that you weren't living through this time of dislocation and distress, of brokenness and pain. But guys, listen to me. We don't get to choose the tasks that God gives us. We don't get to choose the life that we live, but we do get to choose how faithful we are to fulfill them. We do get to decide how we will live the days that God's given us. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't look to the unconquerable human soul, to your own heart, or be the captain of your own ship. I would ask you, put your faith in the only power in this world that is unconquerable. The power of the living God. Would you pray with me now? Dear Lord, God, we come before you this morning not trusting in our own righteousness or our own ability. We don't trust. We don't trust in anything but you. For you are the only thing that has ever proven reliable. So, Lord, we ask that you would indwell us this morning, that you would come down and be on us this morning, that you would lift us up and carry us through this day, through this hour, through the minutes that stretch ahead of us. 
God, that you would be the captain of our ship. That you would be the author of our souls. For you are unconquerable. And that's enough. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.